Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, Parlor, and Instagram. And of course, be sure to visit www.mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. Jamal Han, I have to see my mum. You don't even tell me you're here? Oh, come here. Only bit you and me. Hey. Where am I? Rafini Dal home. Who are if she would do you? What did he say? Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 303. Releasing on the 5th of November in Australian cinemas is A Lion Returns, a drama that tells the story of a jihadi who returns to his Western Sydney home after 18 months in Syria, where he must face the ramifications of his decisions and the consequences of his actions. A stirring drama that tackles how the scourge of extremist ideology has plagued the community. A Lion Returns also marks the feature film return of director Sirhat Karidi, who made an impact back in 2009 with his debut, Cedar Boys. And joining me now on a Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is none other than the writer and director of A Lion Returns, Sirhat Karidi. Sirhat, I thank you very much for your time today. Hey, Matt, how are you? Lovely to be here. So... This is really interesting. A Lion Returns releases tomorrow's cinemas. This movie, though, was shot back in 2017. Um, we've had some early screenings, some really positive early reviews. I'm sure you must be so very excited and relieved to finally have the movie out in cinemas tomorrow. Yeah, Matt, I am, I am. Like, um, filmmaking in just normally is, is a struggle and hard and, you know, it takes a while um and given we've had COVID it sort of put a bit of more of a spanner in the wick so we shot the film in late 2000 sorry 2017 late October November Mm -hmm. uh we I had a rough cut fine cut done by the following May of 2018 and then we had some interest from film festivals around the world in its rough cut stage and then we sort of had a bit of a blank wall in the middle of 2018, end of 2018, and then we were fortunate enough to come across an executive producer from Queensland who said, look, I really like it. I can help you finish it, get it to cinema quality. Because when you finish a film, you you need to know where your film's going to end up. So if you wanted to make a film and put it on web series, fine. If you wanted to put a film and just release it on TV, fine. But when you re- want to release a film on cinema, you need a DCP, and a DCP is a digital cinema package. It's like a hard drive with a film in certain formats, right? Mm-hmm. And to create that, most cinemas don't want a two-channel mix. They want a 5.1 or more sound channel mix. And so that's where the hard part, and that's where you need some money. So we were, we were stuck for a while thinking how we're going to finish this film, we're going to finish in cinemas. If we want to get it to the film festival, we need to get a DCP. So... We ran out of options until Steve Jaggy Company in Queensland came on board and most of 2019 was just spent finishing the film and we're fortunate enough that, you know, if you've, if you've seen it, the quality really looks nice and sharp and clear and the grading, the colours and the sound design, it's all like very cinema quality now. So 
that was the ordeal of getting it, and that's why it took so long to finish it. I'd like to go back even further from that. I read that you were inspired by an article in the um, Sydney Morning Herald about a, a man who was living with his wife and young child in Western Sydney, and he had just returned from Syria, I think maybe a couple of years prior to that. Um, mm. What was it about that story, that article, that really kind of inspired you to make frame your own film based on a similar type of situation? Um, yeah, look, there were... He was one of 120, 140 Australians that went over mm. and they'd leave the country by saying they're going over for humanitarian reasons. They'd end up in Turkey and through from Turkey they'd make their way into Syria without getting their passports stamped. So he somehow got back. He was under the radar. I think he left with three people. Um, for somehow that's the reasons that they got in and then when they come back in they kind of use the same excuse, I think. So that's mm -hmm. how some of them would get through and some of them would get arrested. Now, he was holding his one-year-old girl in his arms and talking about, you know, the, their purpose and why they went over there and, you know, if Western governments keep interfering in Middle Eastern countries, this is going to be the result. And then, you know, when we're all back, I think at the time, I'm not, you might have just correct me on this, Matt, but I'm sure that Andrew Chang sh shooting in Parramatta, the police officer got shot by that 16-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. It was around about the same time. And he was saying how, look, there's going to be more of these because, you know, these guys are coming back and they're going to continue the crusade and so on. And then he said something like, he said, while he's holding his baby in his arm, one-year-old baby, he goes, look, you know, we're, we're hungry, we want, we want to go back. In fact, if they gave me my passport back, I'd head back over. I'm like, you're holding your child in your arms, this life that you've just created. You want to go back to Syria and there might be a chance you might not come back. There might be a chance the government might not allow you back or even if you did come back, you'd get arrested. So... What's driving this person to do that? So I researched further and further and further and then I realised, you know, a lot of them were going over because, because of where they were mentally themselves or they were actually thinking of joining a crew and, you know, wandering and marching through the mountains of, of the Middle East and taking over towns. So it was like a bit of a movement. And then, you know, you find out later on that it was all about creating their own caliphate and a caliphate is an area or region of the world where they can install their Sharia law and live like traditionally as Muslims. Mm -hmm. Like uh, in actual fact, they actually did create their own caliphate. From 2011, parts of Iraq and northern Syria were taken over by ISIS or ISIL or whatever offshoot you want to call them. And they mm -hmm. did create their own caliphate. And they, they, they were, you know, the, 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 it was last, lasted about two, three years. But the irony is, how were they allowed to do this? Yeah. Like how do you allow a, a group of men and women to create their own caliphate in an area that was heavily monitored by drones? Like that just really puzzled me. And, and to think that these people, these Australians that are going over into this caliphate, I mean, if, if, you, if there was an area or region of the world that you wanted to find all your terrorists, but then just call it a caliphate because they're all going to be there. And that was the irony of it. Like you're actually calling yourself jihadists and going over and creating your own caliphate but if america or anybody else wanted to bomb you you they're going to find you pretty easy because you're all in the one area now mm. like the idea of that just could not i just i just found it so ludicrous and puzzling that they think they're going to get away with that for so long and and as you know now history will tell you that they got they got their um they got bombed out of there completely and they're only they're only left in idlib now and even now in idlib and and just the surrounding areas they're still conducting missions and bombings out of that area so there's a little bit of a resurgence i think covid put a stop to all the traveling yeah 
I, I'm sure they're still they're still going to be rising out of there because, unfortunately, a lot of them are funded and supported by the West. So you have your inspiration for your film. You're working on your screenplay. Next thing mm. of everyone, every filmmaker's mind, and you've mentioned it before, is always comes down to funding. And this mm. time you actually went to crowdfunding um, to help raise funds for your production costs. Um, I've talked to a lot of different independent filmmakers from around the world um, mm. that have used crowdfunding. I got, heard some good feedback. I heard some not so good feedback. What about for yourself? <laughs> How did you find kind of like the crowdfunding uh, experience for yourself? Um, look, Matt, we we at the time hadn't really had that. We didn't have much of a choice, to be honest. We actually saw, thought, okay, look, we've been writing, developing and researching this for about two years. What are we going to do? We're going to go put it into into Funding that'll take at least another year to yeah. complete. Um, and given the subject matter, and given the characters, and the actors, and the writer director, uh, at the time, I mean, this is not a criticism. This is just the, the way it was at the time. At the time, they were really pushing for um, gender balance and and get, getting that um, we call it um, parity for for amount of films being made and directed by by women. So I thought, look, I'm not going to go into that pool at the moment. I'll wait till that settles down, and then I'll put my other projects through. So for this one, I just thought. Because it's so male dominated and 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 skewed towards males as well, I thought, oh, we'll just do the crowdfunding. And also, the crowdfunding worked in this way as well. It actually created a little bit of media and and word of mouth for us as well, and it did it sort of generated some some publicity for us in late September of that year. So that was good. And um, we reached our target. I think we had about a, a day to spare. Mm. Um, we created a little pitch video because I did some research and I found out that, you know, you having just your cast or your, or your crew sitting on a couch and telling everyone how amazing and brilliant they are, I thought, nah, it's just a bit too generic. So what I did was I had the idea of putting the actors in the back seat of a car, me in the front seat, another cameraman in the, in the driver's seat, and making a video about making a pitch video, actual. And, you know, we kept all the beeps and the bloops and the swearing and, Every time someone said the word amazing or incredible, I said, cut, can you not use that word amazing? Please describe what's amazing about this project or about this film. So it was a little bit of a comedy and it went down really well. And, um, yeah, we got our, we got our, we hit our target of 47500 within like a day to spare. Then we had two other investors and those investors, the first one gave us fifteen grand, and that all became part of the shooting budget. And then another investor gave us 10000 That helped us. To our online edit, um, and that kind of lasted till about I think about May of the following year, and then it's when our money ran out and we went for um, we got Steve Jagger to come help us. In fact, when we were trying to complete the film, I did apply for funding. I applied three times mm-hmm. to, to state and federal government, and three times we got knocked back. When it comes to going back behind the camera on a feature film. And I know you've been working with workshops um, in between your times, between your debut in 2009 with Cedar Boys and what you're doing, what you have now with uh, A Lion Returns. I know you've done a lot of TV stuff as well, but when it comes to doing your own thing, your own production, your own film um, and mm. independent production, what lessons do you bring from Cedar Boys to your new film? I, it was interesting because I was doing some research um, uh, over the last couple of days for our interview and I came across this interview where you said, back then in 2009 that you wished you filmed Cedar Boys with two cameras and then I read that you actually did film this movie <laughs> with, with two cameras and I was like that's, well that's done. a lesson ticked right there. What other kind of uh, lessons do you bring from that first production to the second one? Uh, rehearsal. 
Yeah. Rehearsing, uh, give yourself enough time and 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 resources to re- rehearse because we didn't get that much time to rehearse in Cedar Boys, even though the actors in Cedar Boys were working with me for like months. Do you know what I mean? Because they're like, they end up becoming my friends. So we come over and drive around and just run the lines and stuff. That was good. But all the other cast members, I couldn't get into that amount of time. So this time I made sure that we were allocated two weeks before rehearsals, which is unthinkable in a, on a feature film. On a feature film, you be get, you'll get allocated three days in your budget to rehearse with the actors. Yeah. And if you think about the reach of, of film, how wide a film can go, um, how many people could see it versus theatre, you'd think rehearsal should be paramount, should be at least scheduled in for two weeks. So like when you do theatre in Sydney, I've done theatre productions as well, um, You they rehearse for four weeks, five yeah. days a week, you know, nine till five or ten till four sometimes, do you know what I mean? So I wanted to make sure I got a lot of rehearsals and I, we did for this one. And like you said, two cameras um, and also being involved in every stage of, of the film's gestation, like from post-production and marketing and poster and trailer and everything. I wanted to make sure I was involved in every stage of the way with this this time. And this time because I was going putting the film through my company and I was one of the producers, I had that um control and, and say in it as well which is good um what are the lessons uh, i minimum lighting but I, i'd say i even if i said minimum lighting we still had lights but it's just when you uh, when you're shooting in such a tight schedule like, I don't know, we had 10 days to shoot this yeah we see it was i had 26 um when you shoot that many short days when your schedule is that tight you've really got to minimize as much setups, um, as much kind of equipment as you can. You've got to shoot it like a documentary practically, a very small crew, minimum amount of setups, minimum amount of wasting time. Like so you really go through the shoot so quickly and and economically that you don't have time to do anything else. Um, We were fortunate because we didn't have any night shoots. It was all during during the day, which helped. Uh, two cameras, like you said, it was for, so for that much dialogue, it helped. Even though on the day it could be a little bit of a pain to coordinate them, but you know, like I said, once you once you plan it all, you know when to use two cameras, where to put the cameras. It really helped a lot. Um, and I suppose one of the big lesson I learned from Cedar Boys. It's about it, really. There were the two main ones, the two cameras and having um, control and the same what the whole development and the whole gestation of the film, really, yeah. Because I also minimum read... Lighting, minimum lighting. Yes, and I also read, like, in the with the previous film, you wanted Cedar Boys to actually be, like, five, seven minutes kind of longer, uh, but contractually you had to present, uh, like, a certain amount of minutes, which I think that film was, like, 100 minutes long. And I guess yeah. coming from experience like that, really, I, I imagine on your behalf you'd be like, you know what, if I was calling the shots and I had and I could have done that, you know, it would have helped been helped quite a bit. So I'm sure when you're in your final edit and you're putting together your runtime, it would have been nice. It felt nice to have that freedom to be able to, you know, determine just how long your movie can run for. Yeah, that's a really good point, Matt. Really good point. Um, I mean, I can say this now because it's been 10 years, but yeah, my original cut to Cedar Boys was 107 minutes and had a lot more character development in the beginning. Yeah. Whereas when they when you cut seven minutes doesn't seem too long. But when I say there were 17 scenes cut from Cedar Boys, you go, oh, wow, yeah. So the setup of those characters, it, it would have been, uh, put it this way, it would have been more of a European film. Mm. So a bit more character development, get to understand them a little bit better and 
not so not so like rushed to get to where they need to get to in the beginning of the film. Um, but in saying that, it the film in its cut down version, 108 minute, 101 minute version, it still works. It still holds. Um, but yeah, I had an idea of having it like one day when I make a lot of money, when I re-release Cedar Boys, I might do a director's cut one day. But at the moment, yeah, that was the version I had to, had to deliver. Now for this film, because I've gone through Cedar Boys, and if you want to ask me another a question about learning my lesson, I think even when I made my short films, I learned, you once you go through that whole process that when you write and then you rehearse and then you shoot, and then you're in post-production, you're doing that editing, because editing, honestly, Oliver Stone said it, Stanley Kubrick said it. Most of those great directors talk about it. The film comes together in the editing, and it's yeah. so important to understand that because when you're shooting, you're the one that's going to be at the other end putting it together. The jigsaw puzzle that you lay out in front of you with all the pieces turned the other way around so you can't see any of the pieces. You've got a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle in front of you. All the pieces are turned over so you can't see them. So you're at the, whilst you're turning over the pieces and looking at the picture, you're also trying to put it all together. So if you've been through that process, you'll understand why how some directors are so rigorous and such perfectionists and such, um, how can I say, such demanding because you know when you're in editing, you don't want to say to yourself, oh, God, I wish I got one more take or I wish I got that shot over there or why didn't I, have, why didn't I get that thing in the background out of the way and why did I use that? So until you've been through that process, You'll understand why directors are so persistent and such, you know, such have so much control and so want to do so much and make sure it's all perfect because once it's in the can and once you're editing, it's that's it. It's going to be like that forever. You can't change it. Like like I said in another interview, if you've done, if you've been, if you're a Steven Spielberg or a Baz Luhrmann or George Miller, you would have the luxury of doing retakes mm. or you know um, pickups as they call them. Go back. Look, I don't like today's shoots. Let's go do it all again. And that's yeah. a luxury only the good directors can have. Yeah. Um, casting is important to all films, of course, but I, thought, I think to this movie especially, so considering the time constraints, <laughs> considering the dialogue-heavy nature of the script as well, uh, you need to have your actors on cue, on point, ready to rock and roll any time. Um, and the cast that you have here is just terrific. I want to speak specifically in regards to um, who played Jamal, which is Tyler Denawi, and Omar, mm -hmm. who's from Demi Alatsi. And that, those are like the two main characters in the film, two brothers, two different ideological points of view um, mm. in, represented in the movie as well. I know you worked with Tyler before. Um, when you write a character like Jamal and you, when, when you've worked with an, an actor like Tyler previously, do you write with him in mind whatsoever? Um, this time I didn't. When I did Cedar Boys, one of the characters played Sam. I did have Watasari in mind. This time I didn't. I didn't have any actors in mind. Um, I knew who to call in for which character, like for auditioning. I thought, okay, I'll bring that actor, that, these actors in for that character. But I never had an actor in mind when I was writing the character. Um, and Danny Alachi, he, he, when he came in to audition, he had that kind of humble, warm feeling. I, I just knew he would be perfect for the brother of Omar because he just had that quality that you just go, I could see him being, you know, this um, this very level-headed, um, articulate and smart brother who's educated and wants to inform. I just, I just, as soon as you audition, I just thought, yeah, that's, I could see an Omar through him, definitely. For Jamal, I really didn't have anybody in mind. I was just, I wrote the character and the character wasn't really, 
I never intended the character to represent anybody in the community either. There was no like, I didn't, there's no model for Jamal. Mm. Jamal becomes a sort of like an amalgamation of a few characters that I read about and researched, whether it's physically, emotionally, ideologically, um, or even like um, um, family man. Do you know what I mean? So he needed to have all those qualities because he was, in the script, he was going to encounter each member of, of the family. So he needs to become a son, so a brother, a wife, a husband, a nephew, uh, a, a son to his parents, you know what I mean? And, yeah, and, and a, a, a brother-in-law to the sister-in-law, yeah. So and, and a father as well. I think one of the most, to me, one of the most moving scenes is when his son sees him for the first time in, in like, what, two years or so. So that That's was right, yeah. Well. yeah, 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 so... When you, when that's how you, I mean, when you write a character, you've got to make sure your character is not one dimensional. And what, what that means is you give your character a lot more layers. Like, would you believe, I, I, only when we saw it together, uh, Tyler and I, there's only two bits, two moments in the whole script where he actually smiles and has a little bit of a laugh. Hmm. One's in the car and the other one's with his mother. All the other times, he's actually pretty, you could tell he's suffering from PTSD. And that yeah. was the unique thing about Tyler's performance. You can see the vulnerability in him. You can see his indecisiveness. You can see his mental health. But also you can see his dogmatic ideology still coming through. So having layered, having a, a character that's so well layered is what draws the audience in. If the, if the character is just one-dimensional and he kept spewing or kept um, having the same emotional reaction every single time, you'd get bored of him within about 10 minutes. It's really interesting of late, maybe in the last year or two, the number of films that I've watched in regards to certain types of fanaticism, whether they be cult-like behaviour or even non-traditional religious or traditional religious extremism. Um, and a lot of the times when I talk to filmmakers about their characters or where these characters come from, the aspect of mental illness actually pops up quite a bit. And Jamal's, wow. Jamal's really interesting as well because these key lines in the movie one of them um, by his wife talking about how she found that he had antidepressants before he left uh, to go to Syria. So clearly he was dealing with some type of mental issues there. And then you talked about the mm. PTSD stuff as well. Mm. Yourself mm. when writing that character, um, and I, I'm not sure about what type of uh, uh, research put into the framing of the character based on real-life cases, um, did you ever come across aspects of, of, of a correlation between uh, mental illness in regards to depression, et cetera, especially amongst men, because we are dealing mostly with men here um, mm. when it comes to these kind of uh, radical ideologies and, and joining these radical groups. Is there, Did you find any correlation whatsoever between mental illnesses, specifically depression, um, and joining something that seems bigger than them, that there's some type of calling to them, and that gives them some type of self-esteem or confidence? Yeah, I did. I did. I did. Um, I've watched a lot of documentaries, a lot of clips, everything from documentaries in, uh, there was one called um, Haga Jihadi. That was, I think that was in Denmark or Norway, somewhere in Europe. Another one, um, another film called My My Brother the Devil. Mm. Another one, a documentary in England about a white guy converting to Islam and he was being monitored for a while. Then he ended up in Northern Africa and getting killed. All of them, all these characters, including the ones in Australia, all of them had some sort of mental health or anxiety or even like even behavior like that. They, they always felt like they were outsiders or, you know, 
are pariahs in some ways. And so those re those reasons and combined, and you can see how what a perfect mix that was to, for them to join movements like this. And you know, in when it, when when Jamal's character when he's fifteen, we call it the the dark cloud, right? Yeah. The mental illness, the the the, the black dog or the dark cloud that surrounded him. Yeah, uh, you know, when he was fifteen, religion played a good part in his life then because it saved him from you know killing himself, as he says. And his uncle was the one that you know said, "Look, you know, you've got to find your path. You've got to find the reasons why you're here, and you know let." Let, let God be your saviour and it'll, you know, it gave him strength and gave him a purpose. That was a good result. But then, you know, if you've done enough studies of mental health and, 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 and depression and so on, you'll know that there's no real tablet or cure for it really. It's just an ongoing struggle with people and it's about dealing with it on a, as a health issue. Um, and so because he wasn't properly treated and diagnosed, when he was 15, 16, it came back, obviously. And when it came back, the timing of it came back with this movement happening in the Middle East and his uncle tracking it all and sort of, I mean, there's a big debate at the moment. I'm having a debate with some of the actors and even some of them are crooned. And that is, you know, yes, his uncle groomed him and sent him over to join ISIS. Now, Matt, I'm, I'm telling you, I never wrote it with that intention, would you believe? Even though it comes across that way, I never wrote it with that intention. I never wrote it so the uncle on purposely groomed him and sent him over to fight vices. I thought that was just too black and white. I don't think he would have been that cruel or that mischievous or that, you know, evil. I think like like my uncle, I remember when I was young, he'd say to me like, you know, you should go join the army or go do something with yourself and be, be a man, you know, find some sort of challenge. So at the time he probably thought the best thing you do is get him out of the country Get, 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 give him a completely new environment, let him hang out with some mates, uh, with a movement. And, you know, obviously people say they want to join the Free Syrian Army. I mean, the, the great journalist Robert Frist just died the other day, and I remember him interview saying on ABC saying when all this was happening about the Free Syrian Army, he said, Free Syrian Army, he goes, what's that? I've never seen it. What is that? What does that even mean? Yeah. So they use that Free Syrian Army thing, but it's actually just jihadists and and, and and extremists and terrorists going over there and just joining and making up their own group. So whether it was ISIS or another group or whatever reason his uncle told him to go over there, I don't think he intended him to join ISIS and go on these horrible crusades, you know what I mean, and do these evil acts. I think he was actually doing his nephew a favour by saying, go over there, there's some people that you can join up with and do some good for yourself and the fresh air and the mountains and just, you know, go be a man. Go join, go join an army or go join some sort of group. And so through that, maybe he's gone over there and then one thing's led to another and the next thing I, you know, obviously when you're in these positions, you get different opportunities, you get different choices to make. So obviously he landed there and someone said to him, look, we're going over the border, we're going to go do this and we're going to do that. One thing leads to another. Next thing you know, he's holding a black flag in his arm, yeah. in, his, in his hands and, you know, he's, he's in videos with a, with a balaclava on. Or a mask on, do you know what I mean? So the direct link of his uncle making him join ISIS, look, I sometimes I, I would rather just leave that for the audience's interpretation as well, whatever the audience thinks the uncle's purpose was because, you know, the, the uncle's character of Yaya, he, the, the model for that character was a bit like Iago in Shakespeare's Othello. Mm. You know, Iago is like, to everyone else, he's like the great lieutenant trying to 
coordinate things and on the on the you know within the family's eyes he's doing the good thing but underneath it all he's some sort of sinister kind of character that's doing some naughty stuff and I think that once the uncle realized he was responsible for him going over and then he heard he's coming back well then he's already he's probably realized that he's already radicalized and he's coming back so you know he's been told by somebody even higher that he's coming back he's got to come back because his mother's sick while he's back there, let's let's see if you can do a, a bit of a mission for us in, in Sydney, possibly. Yeah. I think it's really interesting as well as that when I was watching the movie, I thought mm. to myself, even if the uncle wasn't in the picture, I think that Jamal would have found himself in that situation anyway. I oh, think, wow, really? Yeah, I, I think that the mindset wow. that he was at at that time was he was trying to find something. And just considering the time and place and what was going on, that that maybe he would just gravitate towards that anyway. Now the uncle, wow. the uncle, I think facilit- could facilitated it with with connections. But I think that if someone crosses over to that mindset, yes, that there's nothing that you can do. Especially like when you mix that with the depression, and also there's seriously there's some conflicts as well going on with his father as well in regards to expectations of him as a yeah, man, etc., all that kind of stuff. Yeah. To me, that I thought that. The uncle, although a facilitator and maybe someone who can, you know, was there to, you know, give some resources and such, even if he wasn't there, maybe there's, he would have found himself, maybe not even in that situation, maybe he could have joined a gang, maybe he could have been anything, anything at all. I think he was searching for something. And the tricky, yeah, yeah, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. It just wasn't working for him, you know? That's exactly right. Yeah, it's a really, yeah, it's a good analogy, actually. That Yeah, you're right. He was yep. searching for something and he's come back and now so somehow, you know, this whole idea of Kay's back, you can tell something's going down. And I think you know from watching the film that he's got he's got he's in two minds about it. Yeah. Okay, he was really forthright and you know, sort of do, sort of like dogmatic in the car with his with his brother, because that's just brother. You just you're not gonna back down when you're arguing with your siblings. But once he gets out of the car and then you know, he sees his wife and sees his kid and he sees his mother. You could tell he's just looking for someone just to just to change his mind. And I think if he did get to see talk to his father, he probably would have changed his mind because of the way that the result, without giving too much away, you can tell that didn't happen because he didn't get what he wanted from the father. Yeah, yeah. And I think so, that's... Yeah, he went down that path then. Well, one of my favorite quotes of all time comes from the great poet Mike Tyson. Um, and he once said that everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And I think um, in regards to Jamal, that punch in the face was when he just came back to the, see the, the ramifications of what he left behind. Um, yeah, the const- that's right. And, and that's something I wanted to touch on now, which is the reverberations that Jamal's decision not only had on his family but on his community mm. as well. And speaking on, on my on myself, I'm a Catholic. I'm a practicing Catholic, and I, I love the church and I love the people in the church. But the church will forever be tainted because of what's been going on the last 20, 30 years in regards to the sexual abuse crisis in, within the church because of certain clergy and etc. And the cover up. Yeah. Now, talk to any Catholic, any person that goes to church and all that. That's exactly. They detest everything that happened. They they wanted to, they wanted to stop. They don't want they wanted the justice to be served, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But they're ever forever going to be tainted on with that brush based on the actions of another person. And to me, it really feels like that in this movie, 
what happened with Jamal's family and his community, um, I could kind of feel that kind of same thing as well. Um, you yourself, you know people in the community, you come from communities like that. When things like this happen, um, whether it be someone from uh, something that happens in Australia or something that happens overseas, et cetera, and there's news coverage and all that kind of stuff, what type of ramifications does that have within the community? Um, there's two. There's one side of the community that were we you have to talk about the regional politics here and 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 what their purpose was. So you've got one side of the community would think, okay, you know, these people are going over, they're going over for humanitarian reasons. And you know what? Assad's a dictator and he needs to go anyhow. So why not? Why not why not as he said in the film, why does he why not cleanse the area of infidels and corrupt dictators and so on, right? But yep. we all know in the Middle East, Middle Eastern countries need dictators. You need a strong arm. If you don't have a strong arm, chaos ensues. Look at Iraq, look at Libya, look at um, even Syria was going in that direction. And who's going to take over when, when you get rid of these leaders? So one side of the community, they're happy that, you know, they don't argue too much. They don't say they're pleased with it, but they don't talk against it too much. They don't speak mm. up against what happened and what the, what these purposes were. Then you've got the other side of the community going, if they go over and do this stuff, all they're doing is they're just giving themselves a bad name. They're demonising their own Arab community, Muslims. Do you know what I mean? And what, what, what is your, how, how extreme do you want to go to get to take over a whole area? You just can't walk around and go, hey, we're going to take over the area. Do you mind if you convert it to to Islam, or do you mind if we just take over your town? There's bloodshed involved. There's killing. There's murdering. You know, people are going to die because that's what that's what happens when you do a coup when you take over countries. So. And also, you know, why, if you get rid of leaders, who are you going to install in its place, like I said before? So that's how the community split sometimes. You're either for regime change or you're not. If you're for regime change, who are you regime changing for? Yeah. Who's going to benefit from it? Who in the area of the Middle East is going to benefit from these jihadists going around and taking over countries? And how are they allowed to do it in the first place? So there's the, that's, that's the argument you come across all the time, where people stay silent about the idea of, regime change and you go why how could what you actually agree that saddam's got to get uh, saddam or, or assad's got to go and you go well hang on a sec what side of politics you want who hang on who why do you why would you even agree to that so as you know like the history will tell you that those countries that were the, they were invaded and taken over or the ladies that were were um killed or absconded they're they're a mess libya has open slave markets libya there are so many warlords and factions in Li libya the country's unlivable at the moment mm. And this is how Syria is going to turn out. And for the Syrian people, if you go back, if you go back, if you go online now and look at what's happening in Aleppo and Raqqa, there's the people in the streets, the schools are open again. There's no, you know, there's nobody walking around installing Sharia law. Like, what the hell, what the hell are they thinking? Like, where was behind these takeovers? What were you thinking? I'm talking like on a bigger, on a, on a global scale. I'm talking like on a bigger, like, who is funding all these people going over? Yeah. What were they purpose? It's like it's like you want to get rid of. So it's split. The community split in this. But hopefully now, as a result of what's happened, you know, you could see the 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 trauma and the and the and the mental health of these people coming back. You know, you if you're going to send them over there, they're going to if they're going to come back, you know, they're not going to come back well. And this whole thing about the caliphate's falling over now. So all these all these. All these men, young men and women that went over, they're all going back to their countries. And what do you do with them now? Do you rehabilitate them? 
Do you lock them up? Do you take their passport off? Because I know some of them, the Australian, Australian governments cancel their passports, so they're in limbo now. Um, so yeah, it's like it's 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 they're caught in a mix. What's really what I really love about Alliance Returns is the diversity of different opinion, which I think in the media. And I think it's representative because not many voices from the Middle Eastern community are represented in the media, whether it be film, et cetera, uh, don't really portray these diversity of voices, especially in the first 30 minutes of your movie, the dialogue between Jamal and Omar and all the different things going there. It, I think it's just it's really fascinating and I think really important as well. And it comes back, I think, to this quote you gave back in 2009 when you are promoting Cedar Boys, which was you were sick of seeing young Lebanese boys portrayed in, in a one-dimensional way on your screens. And I, yeah. I guess the, the question I have now is that we've moved on 11 years since then. Has much changed, do you think? Do you think that the portrayal of Middle Eastern uh, people on Australian screens has changed much? Uh, I know on TV there's been, uh, there has been um, strides there, but what about feature film? Do you see much of a change there? Uh, there aren't that many feature films with these characters on there, I, I, I think like George Bash is doing the combination um, and Convict and so on. He does a few of those. There's a couple other ones. Ronnie Raskella is doing a couple as well, uh, and a feature film with these kind of characters. But they're characters. They're not playing, you know, they're not playing your token Middle Eastern Arab criminal gangster, do you know what I mean? You, yeah. And they're not playing one-dimensional, one one-emotional all the way through. You're giving them uh, – put this way, you, you – in this film, I'm giving them a voice. I'm letting them speak. I'm letting them know that why they went and did what they did do. And also, um, you, 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 I'm trying to humanise them as well, not just paint them as all monsters. And the good thing about this film is you see an Arab family's reaction to a person, a member of their family, going down this path. And as you know, it's not all members of the family agree to it, to the point where you want to ostracise your own son hmm. completely out of the family. So for everyone listening, A Lion Returns in cinemas on the 5th of November. You can actually go to a website, alionreturnsmovie.com. I have all the information there in regards to the movie, and it is a fantastic film. And so, Hat, I just want to say thank you very much for your time today, and congrats with the film. Thank you, Matt. Like I said, it comes out tomorrow in selected cinemas, and we've got a Q&A next month, Wednesday night with uh, Margaret Pomerantz at, um, at the Hayden Orpheum.